Hello and welcome to Future Curious from Nesta, the podcast that predicts the future by talking to those who are creating it. I'm Tian and Duyan. If I asked you to say how the future of the area you live in should be shaped, what changes would you propose? If it was my local community, they'd probably ask for an increase in affordable housing, more green areas and at least one more swing in the playground as it's ridiculous that that one dad lets his kid on there for over 45 minutes at a time. <clears throat> OK, maybe that last one is just me. But how would it make you feel to take an active part in changing where you live for the better? This week's episode is all about participatory futures, which is a way of working with communities to look at exactly what they need to make where they are work for them overcoming the complex challenges we face by ensuring those affected by the decisions get a say from the start. It asks questions like, how can we give the whole community a voice that helps shape, design and build the way they want to live? How do you learn from some pretty big mistakes? Who gets to choose the future? And what on earth do the exotic locations of Hawaii, uh, Newcastle-upon-Tyne and Kazakhstan have in common? All of this will be revealed in under 30 minutes. Let's get to it. Joining me is Kathy Peach, who is the co-head of the Centre for Collective Intelligence Design here at Nesta. Kathy, you've described participatory futures as new platforms for public imagination. Can you explain to me what that means? Yes. So put more simply, it's a range of different ways for involving the public in shaping the future. It's really about democratising the future. It's about helping to build public imagination about the types of futures that people want and creating more hope by translating that into tangible actions in the present. So Kathy, how do participatory futures fit into the kind of wider theory or debate about thinking about the future? How is this different from what's been done before? Well, if you look at who is responsible for thinking about and shaping the future at the moment, it's actually a very narrow group of people. It's predominantly tech companies, lobbyists, regulators and consultants, maybe a few academics in there too. But it's predominantly white, it's predominantly male and it's predominantly Western. But actually, our futures are things that we all share, we all have in common and they're an inheritance that we're building together and we all need to have a much greater say in them. That's what Participatory Futures is about. And how does digital technology uh, get involved in helping people to take part in all of this? What are the kind of techniques that you're allowing these people to have a voice in what happens? Well, that's one of the really exciting developments that's happened in Participatory Futures in the last few years. It's actually an old technique that's been around since the 60s, uh, but for a very long time, it was predominantly done through things like small group-based workshops and other in-person activities. And what we've seen over the last few years is really an explosion of new types of methods that have been driven by the combination of digital technologies and the involvement of people from arts, theatre, design, now what we're seeing is much more experiential type activities, immersive experiences. And what they're doing is not just enabling people to have rational conversations about the future, but actually to start to experience and embody alternative futures. And that's opening up entirely new ways to have conversations about the future and what people want from it. That also sounds really fun. Is it quite fun? I mean, I don't want to sound like a giant child, but is it a bit like playing games that actually help you kind of make decisions? 
it is. And gaming is actually one of the, the methods where we're seeing a huge amount of development, huge amount of ideas. For example, there was a, a very influential game some years back called A World Without Oil, where people were asked to imagine a scenario in which we had to stop using oil. And as part of the game, they were asked to imagine and share with each other the kind of strategies, the kind of coping techniques that they would employ in that kind of world. And what we think is interesting about that is that that, I think, helps prefigure the kind of actions that people might need to take if that future at some point emerges, it starts to help people really think in a, in a very different way. And does it also kind of make it accessible to a whole different maybe generation of people? Yeah, it's definitely helping to reach larger numbers of people. There are some fantastic examples of, for example, Aboriginal young people who are telling stories about the future from their personal perspectives. That's something that you wouldn't have seen 10 20 years ago. What we're also seeing is people creating simulations of particular futures. A recent example was a project called A Week with Wonder, which simulated an AI assistant that goes horribly wrong. So you signed up to be at the mercy of this AI assistant. And over the course of the week, the AI assistant gets more and more out of control, starts by you know, making tiny decisions about your life, then progresses on to doing all sorts of crazy things like deleting a whole set of friends from your Facebook profile because they're not desirable characters. Why do we need it now? So we need participatory futures now because we're facing a number of really complex challenges. We're wrestling with climate change. We're wrestling with demographic shifts. And we've got to figure out how we deal with the threats from emerging technologies. Now, all of those really complex challenges have long-term consequences, long-term impacts, but they require us to develop collective visions and collaborative action right now today. So that's one key reason. Second key reason is that we need to rebuild trust and the ability of our governance and our institutions to actually deal with these long-term complex challenges effectively. We know that trust in institutions is declining, support for democracy is declining, particularly among young people. And participatory futures is one way that we can, I think, start to potentially overcome some of the short-termism, some of the polarisation that's dominating our political environment at the moment, and start to build a constituency for, for long-term change. One of the places that has used a participatory futures approach is Newcastle. In 2014, austerity was kicking in and the local authority faced some large budget cuts. Rather than get knocked back by funding issues, the city decided to take a revolutionary approach and looked at ways to design a promising future for its residents. Newcastle 2065 was a coalition of partners led by Newcastle University working with local people to help them design and plan for the future of the region that they wanted. We spoke with Mark Tudor-Jones, who is Professor of Town Planning and Director of Newcastle City Futures at Newcastle University, who explains more. I've been leading an initiative in Newcastle called Newcastle City Futures, which has sought to be an engagement and innovation platform 
to deliver innovative projects into the city. Newcastle City Futures started in 2014 as an idea to find new ways of encouraging people to engage in big issues affecting their own city. Things like renewal of transport, issues to do with the economy, issues to do with how we green the city. And it seemed to us that traditional consultation mechanisms that local government normally pursues was inadequate to deal with big city questions. Consultation tends to rely on single issues or sectoral issues. And what we wanted to find a way to do was to encourage people to talk about the city as a whole and some big ticket issues, to reflect about what's happened in the recent past, to think about where we are today, and then to use those as a platform to think about where we might want to go to tomorrow. The university took the initiative in Newcastle to lead this as a broker, as a facilitation mechanism for partners outside. So this wasn't a research initiative. It was a way that the university could give something back to the place in which it was located. The university has a tradition of being a civic university. It's very much of its region. This city and region uh, has been suffering, if you like, economic decline and the effects of public cuts in one form or another, really, since the decline of shipbuilding over a 50-year period. This was another wave of those cuts, uh, a potential for unemployment that the city had seen before. But this was a different era and a different context. I think the question for most people was, how are we going to survive? How are we going to be a major city player in the UK and indeed internationally while looking after our citizens and communities for the sorts of public service health and well-being that they require, while our traditional institutions were seemingly about to go into meltdown. And rather than enter into a spiral of doom, put those messages out that we can be great, we can be proactive, and we can make a difference if we find the right ways to come together, to work together, and to start delivering new ideas and projects which would be of benefit to citizens and communities. We started with engagement and we devised an exhibition and a forum where people could put their ideas forward for the future. That was recognized as a really innovative initiative by the City Council, who then set up a quasi-committee, the City Futures Development Group, as a forum for debating long-term change in the city across the sectors. We then undertook a small research project for a national initiative led by the chief scientists of UK government on future of cities, which looked at different scenarios over 50 years for the future of the city, some desirable, some undesirable. And then that led to research being attracted from the research councils to become an urban living partnership. And what that urban living partnership allowed us to do was take the ideas from engagement and the policy ideas and some of the research themes and turn them into a delivery platform for agencies in the city. And that, over a three-year period, allowed us to engage and partner with 190 different organizations from multinationals to small businesses and communities, 
deliver 26 projects on the ground for them, uh, not directly, but uh, as a facilitator, and also leave it in then £23 million for their projects. What it's meant, I suppose, is that we've created a platform for change and a platform for innovation and difference. And because we've delivered, as opposed to just talked about it, that is a very attractive proposition for more and more organizations to get involved with us. We have fragmented government. We have austerity in government. So we can't expect the usual players to play that initiative and facilitation role as well. The public have fantastic ideas, which are probably untapped in individual places. This is a way of turning it all on its head and making it all a reality. As a result of the exhibition and engagement and and City Futures Development Group discussions, we identified four themes that were very important for the place. And these themes might be different in other places, but they're relevant for Newcastle. Age-friendly, creative, digital, and sustainable. Joining us now is Laurie Smith, who's a principal researcher in the explorations team at Nesta. Um, Kathy and Laurie, it's really interesting that the project helped the team to think more widely. Is this kind of response common in the participatory futures projects that you've seen and worked with? So I think what we see with a lot of participatory futures exercises is that they really help people identify their blind spots about the future. So all of us will come to the future or the way we think about the future with a number of assumptions. And what we know from research is that the when we think about the future, the areas of our brain that actually light up are those areas connected with the past and with memories. So when we think about the future, it's not surprising that most people tend to think about the future as pretty much an extrapolation of the present today. What participatory futures does is bring together a very diverse group of people who all hold very different experiences, different perspectives, different worldviews. And that's really fundamental in getting people to shift their assumptions, challenge them, and think about the future in entirely different ways. So Nesta's been doing some work around drones um, called the Flying High Challenge, and that's looking at ways at which um, drones can be used for social good. And... I suppose one way of thinking about drones are sort of quite particular sort of local questions about, you know, do drones land next to Tesco's or they land next to Sainsbury's? But what Futures allows you to do, or participatory Futures allows you to do, is sort of change our mental models and think beyond very sort of particular immediate effects and think, well, how might a whole drone transport system work? What is the infrastructure we need to put in place? What are totally new things that drones could do that we'd never have thought of in the past? And it sort of opens that conversation and by involving citizens they can offer advice and input that maybe experts might not have thought of. We're now joined by John A. Sweeney, who is currently uh, patiently waiting in Dubai, but works for the Kazakh Research Institute for Future Studies and also advises Nesta on some of its work. Um, Hello, John. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. What got you interested in participatory futures, John? Well, I had the good fortune to go through the PhD program at the University of Hawaii, which is one of the few places in the world where you can actually focus on something called future studies. And this is an academic discipline that essentially is premised around the concept that the future doesn't exist. 
So if the future doesn't exist and there are multiple futures, hence participatory futures, we need to find ways of understanding our perceptions about those futures, about how we can anticipate aspects of different futures. And then fundamentally, as this conversation has, I think, done a great job of showing, how do we find better ways at shaping the future? And I think that's really important here is that it's not just about talking about the future. It's about finding better pathways of acting to actually play an active, fundamentally participatory role in creating the future that we want. And Hawaii's had several projects, hasn't it, that all looked at the future of Hawaii. There was the Hawaii 2000, then Hawaii 2050, and now currently Hawaii 2060. How have those projects, you know, sought to getting people involved in them, dreaming about the future of Hawaii? Well, let me say that Hawaii is a great place to do futures work because it's a hybrid space. It's definitely the U.S., but it's also considered by many to be an occupied territory. And so, you know, the diverse nature of the population, obviously you have a a really active Native Hawaiian population, really creates this dynamism where participation is not something you can just say a box we're going to tick, but you have to fundamentally reimagine what inclusivity and diversity look like in relation to how you would govern an island chain that sits in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And so the fact that Hawaii is very much a canary in the coal mine relative to climate change and has always had pressures around how do you feed this population, how do people get from A to B, uh, has allowed it to really open up a space where futures is, is an active part of how people think. And so the most recent project that I've been a part of was looking at the year 2060 and how we could fundamentally reimagine how the state might actually deal with climate change in a meaningful way. Uh, We had people like the National Oceanic uh, Atmospheric Administration, Army Corps of Engineers, and the State Office of Planning undertake this project. And we use an immersive approach. So when you walked into the room, you were actually in that future. And what that allowed us to do was not just to change people's minds, but to actually get people thinking and feeling differently about the future. And I think as others have mentioned, that's great because the parts of our brain that light up are usually the parts associated with memory. But actually, how do we find ways of creating memories from the future? That sounds quite incredible. How did people respond to being immersed in a future? What's amazing about it is people responded in all sorts of ways. So some people got completely freaked out and left the room. Actually, one of the world's top oceanographers, and I won't name names, came up to our mentor after being in a room where sea level rise was completely overtaken the state. So people had gone underwater to essentially survive and thrive. And he said the scenario, which was actually based on real data, and we used a very common scenario modeling process, and he was one of the interviewees for this. He said the scenario was unrealistic and irresponsible. And that was in 2011. Now, fast forward to 2014, the same oceanographer came back and had to apologize because the scientific model had changed. And what was once an extreme scenario for sea level rise had now become a baseline. So in some ways, I think the responses were very normal. People said, wow, this is great. This is interesting. This is engaging. But also people said, wait, this is implausible. And they put up their arms. So, John, you advise on lots of projects all around the world about how they plan for the future. What would you suggest the best practices or what's the sort of advice that you give if they want to go ahead with a participatory futures study? So for me, there are two aspects. You know, it's very clear that participatory futures can make strategies better. 
But participatory features is actually about paradigmatic change. How do we actually bring in curiosity? How do we enhance how we uh, understand and make sense of uncertainty? How do we bring in ambiguity and understand that obviously the world is not a black and white place? We need to be able and feel comfortable operating in spaces of gray. And so that S on the end of predatory features is really important because it keeps us open to the possibility space. We need to rethink what it means to govern in a world facing climate change and actually find viable strategies to shift paradigms. So a question for all of you, we'll start with you, Laurie. How do you, you know, make sure that something happens from these participatory futures exercises? How do you make sure they aren't just sort of an exercise that lots of money spent on and then nothing yep. further happens? Where, where do you go from once one of these exercises happens? Some of it is getting sort of high level buy-in. So if the, if you're doing that as part of an organisation is make sure that the most senior people are interested and involved and engaged will be taken forward. Another aspect is um, having a sort of dedicated champion, so someone whose responsibility it is to sort of manage that sort of work. I think building sort of follow-up and momentum into the project is important. The most important aspect of it is making sure it is participatory because if the community and citizens and people are involved, then they will often, after being involved in, say, some of these creative exercises, they can clam up to make sure it actually happened. I think a good example of this is a participatory futures exercise in Nosaruba, which is a Caribbean island. And this was started by one government, I think in about sort of 2008, 2009. They started a big exercise and partway through there was a change of government. And it'd be very easy for that government to say, actually, that was the work of the previous government, we don't want to continue with this. But that project was continued in a slightly different form. And it might be argued that citizens being involved with it ensure that happened and you had that continuity. I think we've talked about lots of examples today, but actually they are still, relatively speaking, quite rare. What we see, by and large, are fairly standard public engagement practices. It's the town hall meetings, it's the surveys, it's maybe some focus group interviews. What we really need is more institutions, more organisations to be sponsoring participatory futures activities and exercises, to be investing in more innovative methods of engagement, and really importantly, to be measuring the impact. Because what we know so far from the participatory futures activities that we've researched and analysed and been involved in is that that tends to be something that people forget to invest the money or put the money aside for. And what we really need to do to develop this field much faster and in a much more rigorous way is to invest much more in evaluating the impact. And that's one of the, the key things that we're recommending in our new user guide to participatory futures on the Nesta website today. Which I want to ask you about in just a minute, Cathy, but uh, if people are inspired by this episode and by this conversation, can you apply these kind of ideas to their own communities? Or can you scale it down? Or does it have to be big, immersive experiences that require government funding? No, I think what we see is it happens at all levels. There are lots of community-driven exercises that are happening organically without support from local governments, national governments or big institutions. What we absolutely don't want to do is imply that big organisations should come along, quash those activities. We really think it's important to start building much more of a supportive ecosystem around participatory futures and really championing the work that is already happening in many places. 
So, as Cathy mentioned, herself, Laurie and John have been working on something to help that happen. A new user guide and a game. So, can you tell me about what's in the user guide, who's it for, and can the users use the user guide? And that's aimed at people, say, in local government, central government, or the third sector, who want to commission this sort of work. So it's not necessarily the people who conduct it, but also um, the people who might be asking others to do it. What we want to do is try to sort of cut through some of the jargon around this. So, so providing a sort of simple user guide that provides a bit of a definition of participatory features, provides some inspiring options, some case studies, some pulling out some lessons from that will help them conduct more participatory features and also make the case that their organisation should be doing this. John, could you tell us about how the game will work? Yeah, so the, the game came about because obviously we wanted not just to talk the talk, but to walk the walk. So the, the whole project itself has actually uh, been put together by what we call the global swarm. And what we realized in our conversations was that you know the richness and the depth of bringing this idea and having practitioners further this conversation um, needed to actually be done in a way that people could engage with. And our hope is that the game is something that can live on and mutate so people can make their own rule sets. People could, you know, completely and utterly transform it in ways that we would have never thought of. And so the elasticity of the game as an actual platform for us is the most exciting part because it's fundamentally participatory. And so the game itself is meant to just be something that, that we could put out and that people could also, you know, take further in ways that we would have never thought of. Sounds brilliant. Um, right. And, and Kathy. I want to say that I think participatory futures is particularly relevant and topical in the context of the emerging technologies that we're starting to see. I think if you look, for example, at lots of the conversations and talk around AI ethics at the moment, what we see is the focus on how do we make sure that these technologies do no harm? And the potential participatory futures is to turn that on its head and to say, actually, what do we want to use these technologies for? What are we prepared not to sacrifice? And what values do we want hardwired into them? And a really great example of a participatory futures exercise that speaks to that was something called the Moral Machine. It was an online game, had a number of different scenarios of a self-driving car and put you in a really difficult position because as the game player, you had to decide who this self-driving car would kill. And millions of people around the world have now played this game and actually what it shows is the values that we have as a global society, but also interestingly, how those values differ by cultures. And those is really important that we understand the differences in some of those values and that we're thinking about them in relation to emerging technologies. Who, who did they kill the most? I'm just curious. <laughs> Old people. Wow. Yeah, we probably Bad news out. if you're an old person. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm nearly one myself. <laughs> How can people get their hands on a copy of the user guide and the game? The guide will be on the Nesta website today and the game will be on the website too early on in the new year. Hopefully that's filled you with ideas of the sort of visions you can have about the future of your community and how to make sure everyone is involved in realising it. Well, maybe not everyone. Uh, I'd better not tell that dad about my plans for the extra swing. We'll be back next week with more ideas for a hopeful hereafter. And don't forget, if you've been inspired by this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Follow us at Nesta underscore UK or send me an email futurecurious at Nesta.org.uk. Bye for now.